Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this PTJ podcast. I'm Alan Jetty. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of PTJ, and today I'm delighted to welcome as my guest Dr. Michael Miller, who's Professor of Physical Therapy in the program of physical therapy uh, in and the Department of Radiology at Washington University School of Medicine. Welcome, Michael. Uh, thank you, Alan. It's good to chat with you about this paper. The title of the article that we're going to be discussing is Effect of a Shoulder Movement Intervention on Joint Mobility, Pain, and Disability in people with diabetes. I really enjoyed the article, Michael, and I learned a lot. What I thought I would do is give listeners a short summary of the article, and then we'll talk about a few questions that I have. That sounds good. The objective of this randomized controlled trial was to evaluate the effects of a shoulder movement intervention, which the authors referred to as SHOMO. Is that the right pronunciation, Michael? That's correct. Uh It's kind of short for shoulder movement. Yeah, I liked it. So they compared SHOMO to the wellness intervention, looking at active shoulder flexion, shoulder pain, and disability in 52 participants with type 2 diabetes who also had shoulder pain or limited shoulder motion. And they looked at, it was a three-month intervention, they looked at the outcomes at the end of the intervention and at 6, 9, and 12 months after the baseline. And the SHOMO intervention group received instruction in a progressive active shoulder movement program in contrast to the wellness group, which received instruction in diabetes management in general. As for results, the intervention group had a 7.2 degree increase in active shoulder flexion compared with the wellness group after the intervention but there was no difference in shoulder flexion at subsequent follow-ups. However, the intervention group did show a 12.7-point improvement in shoulder pain compared to the wellness group after the intervention, which was sustained nine months later. So I really enjoyed this article, and I have to say, Michael, I I was not aware of the prevalence of musculoskeletal shoulder problems in this patient population. In your article, you noted anywhere from 46 to 63% of patients with type 2 diabetes having shoulder problems, and that it's under-recognized and tends to get worse over time. Why do you believe such a high prevalence of this condition in this population? Well, I, I don't think you're alone in in under-recognizing this as a problem, Alan. It, it seems to me that many physical therapists aren't aware of the added complication in diabetes in musculoskeletal problems. You know, as, as physical therapists, we tend to think of a musculoskeletal problem as a unique event, uh, usually a mechanical event. And in people with diabetes, there's also this metabolic problem underlying everything else. So when, as we age, as you know, we all tend to get stiffer. And it seems as if 
people with diabetes are on an accelerated pathway for that stiffness. There's a process called advanced glycated end products, and we all accumulate these byproducts, these ages that they're called for short, as we get older, but diabetics have substantially more than their age match controls, and these metabolic products tend to get within the collagen throughout their body and make the joints more stiff than if they didn't have diabetes or that metabolic problem. So there's this added metabolic problem on top of the mechanical factors that we usually see. You know, that leads to my next question. You also note in your study that the uh, patients with diabetes had 23% lower shoulder activity. Um, You measured it with an accelerometer over a 24-hour period. Is this a direct result of the metabolic changes that you were talking about or something else? Well, it's not known for certain which comes first. It's one of those classic chicken or the egg problems. But clearly, people with diabetes are less active than those that don't have diabetes. We know that they, they their physical activity is substantially less. They take fewer steps during the day. And that decreased activity contributes, perhaps even causes a metabolic problem. So, you know, when we move, when the muscles move, there's an immediate improvement in insulin sensitivity throughout your body. I, I, I mean, I wish everybody could appreciate the benefit of movement in that sense. Every time we move, there's this process that makes the metabolic process more efficient. Insulin becomes more efficient. So that's very well known and documented, but this study, I think, was the first to show that shoulder movement was also decreased. So, you know, is it because they just don't move as much or because of this underlying pain? It's not exactly clear, but but there was a substantial reduction even in shoulder activity between people with diabetes compared to controls. Yeah, it really surprised me. You also note in the article that the evidence on the effects of therapeutic exercise are quite clear in general on shoulder pain and function, but you felt the need to look specifically at this population. Why did you think the effects might differ in those with type 2 diabetes? Well, it goes back to that underlying problem. So quite frankly, in most people, most healthy people without other problems, musculoskeletal problems are self-limiting and, you know, therapy uh, does help. But we also know that in this population, the problem generally doesn't get better. In general, their musculoskeletal problems in, in general and specifically at their sh- shoulder tend to get worse rather than get better. And and so there's this underlying problem of limited joint mobility in diabetes that's that's a systemic problem. Um, it was first documented in the hands in the early 80s, and then we documented it in the feet in the mid and late 80s, and it's becoming more clear that it's not only the small joints in the hands or the feet, but the large joints such as the knees, the hips, and, 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 and even the shoulders, are affected by this limited joint mobility. So in this population, it wasn't particularly clear if exercise would help or not. Going to the intervention itself, 
you chose a duration of three months, and I'm always I always struggle with what's the right duration of these types of exercise interventions. Why did you choose three months? There wasn't any good evidence to suggest the the meta-analysis, you know, and in general, the longer the better. Um, we felt that three months would be a good time because that could affect the change in behavior. So we only saw patients four times over the course of these three months. And uh, we spent, uh, you know, about an hour on each intervention session really instructing them in a home exercise program that they would do on their own. So we wanted a change in behavior, number one. And number two, we thought that it might take that long for true tissue adaptation. So given these people may have a change in their structure, in the joint structure, we thought that three months uh, would be hopefully an adequate amount of time to change their behavior, to change the tissue, and hopefully uh, see some positive results. Well, that makes sense. As I said, it's something I think we all struggle with to find the right, uh, the right duration for these kinds of studies. I was also struck that you powered your study to look at between group differences of 10 degrees in, in shoulder flexion and a 15-point decrease in pain. Were those numbers driven by clinical significance, or what exactly drove you to that effect size in both of those outcomes? Here again, that's a good question, and it gets to the heart of our, our chosen population. And what's really unique about this study is, is that these people were not seeking care for their shoulder. These people did not have severe shoulder problems. In fact, if they had severe shoulder problems, they weren't enrolled in the study. A key point to this paper is to understand these people were at high risk for severe shoulder problems. And so if you look at our inclusion criteria, they had to be 40 to 70 years old. So, you know, we didn't want, want them to be too young or we didn't want age to have a major effect. They had to have diabetes for over 10 years because the effects of diabetes become more apparent after that. And then they had to have one of these other signs, they didn't need to have all of them. So they had to have a positive prayer sign, which is an indication of limited joint mobility. That's where you put your fingers together and your fingers should approximate as if one is praying. And, and, and a positive prayer sign, the, the hand is a bit more like a claw, which indicates the systemic uh, limited joint mobility. Or they had to have shoulder flexion less than 140 degrees or they had to have a spady score of between 20 and 70. And a spady is, uh, is, is the shoulder pain and disability index. So zero is no pain. A hundred is severe, severe pain and complete disability. So we wanted people between 20 and, 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 and 70. But, you know, if they had diabetes for over 10 years and, 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 and maybe a little decrease, they, they may not have even had pain. So there were some patients or some participants in this study that didn't have any pain or severe disability at all. So these were not severely impaired people. So, you know, that, that makes it harder to show a change. If, if, yeah. if you have more involved people, um, 
and, and you have an effective treatment, well, then, you know, your intervention can have a dramatic effect. But these people weren't that bad um, to start with. And so then to get back to your question, 10 degrees is a very meaningful change. And a 15-point uh, decrease in, 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 in pain and disability on the spady is a very meaningful kind of change. And, and, and quite frankly, that was a conservative estimate. The minimal clinically identifiable difference is between 8 and 13 points on the spady or about a 40% change in baseline. So it was, it was a conservative estimate on what would be impactful. So, you know, in, in discussing your inclusion and exclusion criteria and the, the kinds of patients you focused on. It leads me to one of my other questions having to do with the compliance or adherence rates in this population. A fairly high percentage were not particularly compliant with the home exercise program, I think around 45% at one year. Do you think it might have to do with the fact that they weren't that severely involved at the shoulder, or do you think there are other factors that account for that um, compliance rate? I do think that's a reason for what would be considered a poor compliance rate. So uh, about 55% were compliant, 45% were not compliant at, at one-year uh, follow-up, uh, according to self-report. And, and, you know, quite frankly, Alan, I... I was almost pleased that it was at least 55% compliant because it is hard. You know, as you know, it's hard for people to keep doing things and unless they really feel like it's making an impact and a, a change. And, and, and I do think that for those people that weren't having substantial shoulder problems, there wasn't as much of an incentive to continue the home exercise program. Did you look at and did you see a relationship between severity of involvement and compliance? I'm just curious. We didn't have the numbers to really tell. We we did look at that, and we didn't see a big effect from that. But yeah. then we didn't, you know, we didn't have anybody that <laughs> that was really real bad, you know, because they couldn't have had a severe diagnosis. They they had to have a spady between uh, under seventy, so we just didn't have the range to, to to see that. But what do you think is there anything you could think of uh in addition that we that might be helpful in getting compliance? You're you've got such a good perception on behavioral changes. Any other suggestions you might have to improve it? Well you you mentioned you had minimal contact four times, I think. Correct. I, I think booster uh contact has been shown to be quite helpful in uh helping sustain compliance with the home exercise program, uh, maybe by phone or even with um, handheld devices these days, that might help. Yes, yes. I think those are good ideas. In the forefront of people's minds. And it's not terribly expensive to do that. Uh, yes. The other thing is, uh, I thought your exercise program was uh, fairly intensive. Uh, I know it was only 10 to 15 minutes, but twice a day. That's asking a lot of people. Did you feel you needed such a heavy dose, or at least what I perceive as a heavy dose? You may not. I thought that was a heavy dose, and, and we did struggle continually on, you know, what what's enough to make an impact, but not so much to be burdensome to the person that they wouldn't do it. And, and, and as we worked with the the people over the first three months, we wanted to get a bolus of activity to try to change 
uh, the shoulder motion and pain that they did have and also to teach them the exercises. But then in general, when we gave them their final uh, home exercise program to sustain, we, we did cut it back. And there were people, Alan, it was interesting because some of the folks said, you know, we want to keep doing this twice a day and we we will continue to do it but then there were other people that you you know were clear that 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 was too much and so we went through a negotiation process with them on their last visit uh to try to agree on well what was a reasonable amount and my own opinion is that even a few minutes of the end range stretching activity is a tremendous benefit compared to not doing anything at all. I, I, I do think it's the end range stretching and active shoulder motion that's the most important component. Well, you know, that leads me to a question about, about your results. It was quite interesting to me. You did see results in, in range at the end of the intervention, but they were not sustained, if I remember correctly. But your findings on pain and disability that were seen at the end of the intervention did persist. Given the nature of your exercises, I was surprised by that. I was surprised that the range results were not sustained, but pain and disability were. Why, why do you think, Michael? Well, I, I think there's a number of reasons for that. First off, the meta-analysis that I think it was in, the, in 2011 that looked at the effect of exercise programs on people with shoulder problems found similar results, uh, that being that the exercise intervention had a bigger effect on pain and disability than they did on range of motion. So that's consistent in here, but even apart from that, I think there's some other key reasons. One is that we this was a relatively early study. This was a phase one clinical trial, and I don't think we were powered adequately for, for to detect big changes. We only saw a seven-degree change at three months, and then at 12 months, we still saw a five-degree change, but that was not significant. But still, yeah. you know, that one could argue that, that that's meaningful. Or one could argue that five to seven degrees is not not that big of an effect in the first place. However, the key thing to keep in mind is that these folks were not severely limited to start with. So, you know, the, their baseline active shoulder motion was about 143 degrees, and age match controls are only at about 150 or a little over 150. So they didn't have a lot of room to improve in the first place. So given that, in hindsight, we weren't that surprised. I think it would be interesting to do this study in a group of people that had more severe shoulder limitations, more severe shoulder, and, and see what kind of an effect one would have. But I can see the, the relevance of your argument that you're focusing on a group that is likely to get much worse if something isn't done. And so it makes a lot of sense to try to get them on a regimen that's going to help them prevent future problems. Yes, you know? that's right. And that's, that's right. a little harder to show with this type of design. It is, and it's even harder to get people to understand that. <laughs> you know, we're so used to to thinking about um, exercise, you know, therapeutic interventions to correct a severe musculoskeletal and acute musculoskeletal problem. But part of this was very much trying to show a benefit in preventing long 
long-term kinds of problems. Yeah, if you had a five-year follow-up. Right, and and perhaps we can talk about that in just a little bit because we we are in the midst of of such a study. Well, that does lead me to my final question. I'm hoping you're continuing this work, and could you talk a little bit about what what you're currently doing? We are continuing this line of study. As you may know, I've been interested in problems at the foot for many, many years with people with diabetes and peripheral neuropathy. At the foot, you know, we're concerned about uh, foot deformity, skin breakdown, and uh, amputation. And so we, I'm working now with a colleague at Washington University, Dr. Mary Hastings, who's the principal investigator on a five-year NIH and R01 study where we're following patients with diabetes and peripheral neuropathy and looking at one group gets a foot intervention and one group gets a shoulder intervention. And basically, all of these folks have problems at multiple joints. So they have foot problems, they have diabetes and peripheral neuropathy, limited joint mobility at the foot, and they have oftentimes limited joint mobility and pain disability at the shoulder. So what we proposed to do and were funded to do was to do a very targeted intervention for the foot to try to increase strength and mobility with the outcome looking at joint deformity and then also a very targeted intervention at the shoulder, the SHOMO intervention, and looking at uh, range of motion and uh, pain and disability is the primary outcome. So each group then serves as its own control. So we're excited to actually follow two lines of investigation under this theme of diabetes and uh, the effect of diabetes and metabolic disease on musculoskeletal problems. It's a very nice design for a secondary prevention study like the one you just described. It makes a lot of sense, Michael. Yeah, thanks, Alan. We're excited to see the results of it. We're um, just finishing up with the, the, the intervention, and we'll be able to look at if there was any effect over the short term, and then we'll be able to follow them for three years. Well, Michael, I, I want to thank you for taking the time today to discuss your study. I really enjoyed reading it and the opportunity to talk to you about it, and I want to thank you for submitting at uh, PTJ. Thank you, Alan, and I enjoyed the opportunity to develop some of the ideas uh, a bit more in this rather unique intervention trial.